0: Good morning, church. It is a real joy to see all your faces and to to be in a room that is uh, quite full again. If you have your Bibles, please will you open with me to the book of 1 Thessalonians. We're going to be in chapter 4, and I'm going to read from verses 9 to 12. First Thessalonians 4, 9-12 Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, do this more and more live and aspire sorry, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one let's pray father we ask that as we again open up your word together as your people that you would still our hearts and remove distractions that you would clear our thinking, and Holy Spirit, we pray that you would lead us through your word, that you would speak to us in it, and that we would be changed by it. We pray that you would help us through this process to to love you more, to love your word more, to love Jesus more, we ask in your holy name. Amen. Amen. I've always loved that uh, quote by Eric Liddell, you know, the the famous Christian Scottish sprinter, they made that movie Chariots of Fire about him. And he said this, he said, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel God's pleasure. When I run, I feel God's pleasure. He was doing something in his vocation, and while he was doing that, he knew God's pleasure while he was doing it. There ought to be in us this desire in the day in and the day out of our lives that we would know God's pleasure, that we would walk to please Him. Remember, this is Paul's heading for this entire section on instruction in chapter 4. More and more walk in order to please God. And yet it is so often actually in the day-to-day where we know a disconnect between our desire and experience. I desire to walk and to live in a way that is pleasing to God, but I have to get up every morning and go to work. And we may think, good for you, Eric Liddell. You got to do what you love to do. You got to do what you were made for. I'm drowning in a sea of the mundane, and I feel like a fish out of water. And so we often take our cue from the world's advice Make sure that you find a job that you love and then everything will be great. And if it's not rainbows and daisies and you're not walking in this experience of God's pleasure in your work, it must be because your job is wrong for you. The tasks that you have to do every day were meant for somebody else. The truth is, it doesn't matter what job you have, you're not going to love everything about your job. And in this economic climate, we know that we need to be grateful, even that we have work at all. And apart from the jobs that we have from day to day, our lives are full of ordinary, everyday, sometimes mundane things. The moments where your heart soars like Eric Liddell's sword and the enjoyment of what you're called to do can be few and far between, but experiencing Experiencing God's pleasure in your work, experiencing God's pleasure in your day to day—it's not because just because you love work; it's because you love God in your work. Don't misunderstand Eric Liddell—he knew this to be true. His life was not about running. It's why he could say to a he was a Sabbatarian. He could say to a frowning world. No, Sundays are not for running. Sundays are for rest. And I'm going to miss that meat. Give the gold to somebody else. My life is not wrapped up in this. It's why when his moment of fame and the spotlight faded, he could give it up all joyfully and seamlessly to become a missionary in China. Because God's pleasure is about loving God in whatever you're called to do, in the grand and in the mundane For all the commendation that Paul has for this church in Thessalonica, he writes to them in this passage to correct them in this thing. They are loving well in many ways, but their love was lacking in that many of them seem to think that their nine to five didn't matter all that much. When it came to work to the daily grind. Many were taking their cue more from the world than from what was and is supposed to be our grand purpose to live pleasing to God. And I know it's it's not easy to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and your mind and your strength when it comes to your job, where environments can be tough and And people can sometimes be unreasonable, and maybe you feel like you are underappreciated in it. But work is worship. Work is worship, and work, Paul makes the point, is how we are to love one another as well. I think this is what Paul is getting at in this passage, and so I pray that his instruction will help us today. In terms of a, a structure for the sermon, we're going to do things a little bit differently. I'm going to give you one sentence that I believe sums up this passage. I'm going to give it to you in, in the, right in the front, and then slowly we're going to build this sentence together as we go through this text. Here's the sentence to remember for today. We are those taught by God to love quietly and busily for the glory of Christ in the world. Listen again, we are those taught by God to love quietly and busily for the glory of Christ in the world. Number one, we are those taught by God to love. We are taught to love. Francis Schaeffer was a theologian who was known as a a strong apologist, a strong defender of the Christian faith. But he was equally well known for his writings on the importance of Christian love. In fact, the the love that the church has for one another, the love that the church has for the world, ought to be a powerful apologetic in the world. So Schaefer wrote this. He said, Through the centuries, men have displayed many different symbols to show that they are Christians. They have worn marks in the lapels of their coats, hung chains about their necks, even had special haircuts. But there is a much better sign it is a universal mark that is to last through all ages of the church until Jesus comes back. What is the mark that we are Christians? Jesus told his disciples on the night before he went to the cross. In John thirteen thirty four and 35, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So this is the central question to all of our activity in the church. Even as we follow and pursue the Great Commission, we want to ask, are we marked by love? And Paul begins by commending this church. In many ways, they are doing a good job. He says in verse 9, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Taught by God, he says. And that's a very interesting phrase. It's actually one word in the Greek, and it's an adjective that Paul is using to describe them. I believe he's describing what it means to be a Christian, to be regenerate. You don't find this word anywhere else in the New Testament, anywhere else in ancient Greek as far as as I can tell. Paul might actually have coined this term. And he's coined this term, he's making it clear that though he is the one giving instructions, they are those who are in Christ, who have received the Holy Spirit, and who in their inner beings are the God-taught. That's what the word means, God-taught ones. I believe Paul is drawing language from Christ himself and from the prophets. John 6:44 to45, Jesus said, "No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on that last day." And then Jesus says, "It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God." In particular, this expression taught by God reflects that thinking, the, the language of the prophet Jeremiah when he describes this new covenant in Christ. Jeremiah 31 verse 33 to 34, he says, I will put, this is God speaking, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer shall they teach each teach one another his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord. And so Calvin, in his commentary here, he says, this is what Paul means when he says we are the, the, the God-taught ones. Paul meant that love was engraven upon their hearts, so that there was no need of letters written on paper, but that their hearts were framed for love. That's what it means to be a Christian, that God's unshakable covenant love It's the gospel foundation that frames your life and it frames your heart to be able to love others. We sing a a song here that is a a favorite of mine. Uh, it, It echoes the language of Isaiah. We sing, My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. So this is the foundation that we need as we're going to come to talk about love. God's love has been poured out into our lives at new birth through the power of the Holy Spirit. And it is the the love that this indwelling Holy Spirit teaches us, reminds us of again, writes in our hearts again and again. Love, the love of God becomes our teacher in every sphere of life. So, loved in him, we walk secure and we are free then in our goal to please him and to love others in the way that we work. This is Paul's point and he commends them. He says, You're doing well. They, they love, he says, You're loving everybody throughout Macedonia. They were well known. The, the grace that they'd received was a grace that they lived that others would come to know as well. They were generous despite poverty in this church. They were hospitable with the little that they had. And they were bold, we know, to proclaim the gospel despite persecution. There are many ways, Paul says, that you are being an example in love. But then he urges them, as he has this entire section, more and more. That's what you're called to. More and more. And they needed to grow in this. In loving each other and in loving the world. In their attitude toward work. You cannot separate you're nine to five from the rest of your life. God-taught hearts that are resting in Christ's finished work will result in a certain attitude to work and to the day-to-day, ordinary, inescapable tasks that you're called to perform, and your life will have a bearing, an impact on the world around you. So God-taught hearts will be evident firstly in how we love quietly. Number two. We are those taught by God to love quietly. Look at verse 10 and 11 with me. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. We are not entirely sure why, but in both of Paul's letters to the Thessalonians, he felt the need to tell them, some of them in the church, to get a job. So you guys need to get a job. You're being idle, he says in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians and chapter 3 of 2 Thessalonians. We're not exactly sure what the background was. And I want to I share with you the two options because it, it might shade the way that you read this passage and it certainly will enrich your, your, your biblical literacy. So bear with me, please. The first possibility is that we have evidence to to show that there was a cultural practice going on in, in Greece, ancient Greece, and especially in the city, the practice of patronage. Patronage might be behind what Paul is saying here. So in this society, there was a relationship that existed between patron and clients, Clients would attach themselves to these patrons who had higher status, social status, or economic solvency. And by attaching themselves to these patrons, they were hoping for benefits in return for food, clothing, for representation in political affairs in the city. And in return for this, in this relationship, in the marketplace, in the public square, they would cry out their support for their patron. They would honor them in their political affairs. And the more clients that a patron had, the more important he or she seemed in that society. An early Greek writer satirizes a patron in this way, saying, You know how to present a shivering client with a threadbare cloak, and then you say, I love the truth. Tell me the truth about myself. And such was the relationship that existed. Paul may have this system of patronage in mind. Instead of working an honest job, you've sold your allegiance, he's saying, to the highest bidder. And that would obviously be a stumbling block for the cause of the gospel in the marketplace. How do you go into the marketplace and proclaim the lordship of Christ when your praise is bought by another and cheapened in that way? That is one possibility, Other scholars think that the lack of desire in in some of the people in the church was due to a wrong understanding of the the return of Christ. They believe that because Christ's return was imminent, that He was coming soon, what need is there for me to work? What need is there for me to have any care in, in the normal, ordinary tasks of my every day? That view is supported by the fact that right after this passage, Paul is going to speak about the return of Christ, The end of chapter 4, all the way into chapter 5, verse 11, and then in chapter 5, verse 14, he says again, Warn those who are idle. These church members perhaps are not seeking employment and are actually taking advantage of the generosity of those around them in the church. Again, their witness likewise would have been discredited in the world by their laziness. And either of those contexts has this in common. The church members are unnecessarily taking advantage of a system of benefaction, whether that's generosity in the church or patronage outside of the church, maybe both, when they should have been seeking meaningful employment. Now, I want to be careful here. This passage is not speaking to those who honestly look for work and can't find employment. It's not speaking to those who are hardworking, but who nevertheless do need help. the The church benevolence exists for a reason. This passage, as well, is not to be to any of you a license to stinginess and a life of a lack of generosity. We are called to help those in need, but the passage is speaking to those who could work and choose not to. And that choice, Paul says, is a failure to love. It's a failure to love the church and to love the world. And the result is the same, no matter the context. Paul has to speak to them again in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And there he says, your laziness is actually leading to you becoming busybodies in the church, making a nuisance of yourself, causing trouble as well for the gospel outside the church. Boredom always leads to trouble in the context of community. When I was a, a youngster, a teenager, I used to love reading uh, Louis L'Amour western novels. Anybody remember those? Um, the, the antagonists in those stories always were surrounded by worthless men, men who just had too much time on their hands. And too much time on your hands and no constructive outlet for that time always leads to trouble in your life. Boredom and idleness will always lead to a a bending inward, a a selfishness. Christian with too much time on their hands will find themselves in trouble sooner or later. And that's not to say we don't ever switch off, that we mustn't find time for rest or for leisure. It doesn't mean you can never retire from your job. In fact, if you are able to retire, that opens up a world of possibilities in terms of the the work that you can do for Christ. It's not that we don't rest, but it is to say that if we're not using up our time to build up, whether that's in our our job, our role in society, in in our church, in our community, if you're not building up with your time sooner or later, you're going to start knocking things down. This is the result of idleness. You become a, a busybody, and that is living a, a loud life, a loud life that draws attention to self and not to Christ. I believe that's what Paul is, is getting at when he says to you, live a quiet life. Is, is your life about your glory about, or about Christ's? The world is loud. The world is loud. The message all around us is this. It's, look at me. Listen to me, see me. My self-expression is just so important and everybody ought to pay attention to me. And there's a restlessness to that, a, a clamoring for approval and recognition, for significance. Christians are called to live quietly. That is to live in the rest of Christ's love. Set free for the godly ambition, not of glorifying self, but maximizing our lives for the glory of another. Being diligent in our hope that others would see Christ and give glory to Him. And notice when Paul says, aspire to live quietly and mind your own affairs, he's not saying live without any ambition. He's not saying live with your head buried in the sand or live checked out. In fact, Paul's statement here in verse 11 actually reads like an oxymoron in the Greek. Aspire to live quietly. That verb aspire means be ambitious. It means seek restlessly, pursue wholeheartedly. In his commentary, Leon Morris says this, It is a colorful command. Whether Paul meant make it your ambition to be unambitious or seek restlessly to be still." We have an ambition. We have something we are to pursue diligently. And it's to not draw attention to ourselves. It's to draw attention to Christ. That others would see in our lives the grace of Christ. Richard Phillips in his commentary says this. Paul, his statement not only challenges Christians, but also points out a blessing that we enjoy. Christians can be content with who we are in Christ. And do not have to make ourselves out to be something we are not. We do not need to make a fuss to draw attention or seek vain plaudits to prove the value of our lives. And when I was studying this passage and wrestling, what does Paul mean when he says, live quietly, mind your own affairs? I couldn't help but thinking of my father. My dad, for 35 years, he lived as the pastor of one small church. And as long as I can recall, this is something I, I, I bear in my mind when I come to the pulpit every day, every Sunday. As long as I can recall, I never saw in my dad an ambition to make a name for himself. He never lived a loud life. He didn't need the praise of men. He just faithfully and contentedly got on with it. He served his Savior, whether he was behind the pulpit or at the kitchen sink. None of it was meaningless. All of it was worship and nothing was beneath him. My dad worked harder than any person I know. and I know it wasn't for vain glory. It was because he loved his family. He loved his Lord. He loved his church. So quietly he got on with his business. That's how we are to live our lives. Number three, Paul says, we are those taught by God to love quietly and busily, busily. Martin Luther said to have remarked that if he knew the world would end tomorrow, today he would plant a tree. And what he meant by that was, if, if you are looking around at your life, at your job the ordinary everyday tasks that you have to perform, you might have this feeling in your heart that it's all meaningless. But Scripture says it isn't. Scripture calls us to something else. It calls us to a heart of worship in our work. And in, and in those mundane things, S- Scripture upholds a high view of work that there's value and joy to be found in the mundane, even in the things that the world would devalue. And Paul was very careful with his choice of words in this passage. He says to them, work with your hands. Work with your hands. In Greek thought, manual labor was deplorable. It was degrading. In fact, artisans in that culture were seen only a little bit higher than slaves. Plutarch, the philosopher, for example, said this. He said, while we delight in the work, we despise the workmen. As for instance, in the case of perfumes and dyes, we take delight in them, but dyers and perfumers we regard as illiberal and vulgar folk. They thought in that culture, if you got into the, the world of, of thought work or the, the, the arts, that would be better by far. That's why when Paul gets to Athens, what does he see all the important people in that city doing? All they do is sit around all day debating the latest philosophies. Manual labor was considered degrading, and those of status would not engage in it. Our culture is similar to that and has its own version of that, where status really is is found in how much money you make. What is that line on your salary? That's where you find your significance and your status, and we look down on those who earn little. The Bible has a very different perspective to that. The value of your work is not fixed to your remuneration. The value of your work is in how it it builds up and how it helps in the cog that you play in society. The value of your work is found in in doing it with a joyful heart, gratefully. When work is worship, then it's valuable. I mean, look at our, our culture today. And think how just the the role of mom, for example, is degraded. It's seen as lesser than the pursuit of a career. How backwards we are. Can you think of a, a more important role than mother? To see how society as well unravels if the garbage collectors forget one week. Two or three weeks without garbage collectors and everything would fall apart. After the rioting, we, we ought to have far more respect for those whose job is just to, to clean up and the role they play in society. And Paul is saying to those who, who are not willing to work, don't be shaped by the culture in your thinking, in the ordinary call of your day. God does not consider manual labor demeaning. He doesn't look down as well. On the ordinary little things that you do with a smile on your face. And when you work out of love in your heart, actually, scripturally speaking, you're acting a whole lot like God. William Temple, I believe he was the Archbishop of um, Canterbury, he wrote a book called Christianity and the Social Order. And he, he said this in that book. He said, look at the Bible. Talking about the ark of scripture. Creation. Consummation, incarnation, resurrection, what do they all have in common? God with his hands in the dirt. Our God is a a working God. The Christian view of creation is unique. God literally with his hands in the dirt, out of the dust of the earth. And consummation at the end where God cleans up all the mess and builds a forever city that... He will live with us in. An incarnation which we preach and which we celebrate is God taking on flesh, becoming the physical. Think of the Greek thought that, that saw the, the physical and manual labor as deplorable. And resurrection is God redeeming the physical. Well, the work, world would, would look down on that kind of work. The Christian view upholds the value of any honest work. Paul worked with leather while he preached to them in the city. They would have seen, many of them in that culture would have seen that as degrading. But he worked with leather so that he wouldn't be a burden upon them. He was an example in this for the sake of the gospel. And Paul was only taking after Christ. God who took on flesh and dwelt among us and became a carpenter, working with his hands. We need to stop Looking to the world for our significance, working restlessly in vain pursuit after vain pursuit. We're called to see work like we see everything else in our lives as a means of pleasing our Father, resting busily in Him. Tim Keller basically wrote the textbook on work points out that if you're only working for money or for status, one, or, one of two things will happen in your life. Either your work will become too unimportant or it will become too important. If you're only working, for example, for a paycheck, if you're only living for the end of the month when you're going to get paid again, you don't care about how your job helps people or how it builds anything, if you don't care about being useful, if you don't care about glorifying God and what you do, then work is too unimportant. And you'll cut corners and not do it well. And your witness will be affected in the world. Uh, Conversely, if you're only living for more and more, not more and more pleasing God, but for more and more money or approval or success or praise, living not to please God, but to please the world, then work becomes too important. In fact, it becomes a mean that you use, the means that you use to another God. We work not for men, but for God. Colossians 3, 23, 24, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. You know that? When you go to your job tomorrow, you are going as a servant of Jesus Christ. And your boss cannot see everything that you do. If your boss leaves early tomorrow and goes... For a dentist appointment, your boss is not going to be able to see what you're doing in the workplace. But you know who does see—the one who is your real boss. Do you work hard only that that work might be noticed by others, or do you work as unto the Lord? Remember verse one: More and more we walk in order to please God, and that's why we work. We work to please God. Uh, don't hear me wrong in saying that. There is a world of difference between pleasing and appeasing. You do not work in order to appease God, in order to earn His approval or earn His love. That Many people live that way and it's a miserable existence. It leads to self-obsession and pride and self-serving and self-glorifying. We don't ever, ever have to appease God by our toil and effort because Christ has made atonement for us through his blood. Christ lived the perfect life that we could never live and he offered up that life on our behalf and he died for us. We don't have to appease God. We get rest for the soul. We rest in the finished work of Christ. Listen to me, some of you are trying to do this. You're using your work. You're using your devotional life, your moral activity, your charitableness, your generosity, even your faith. You're trying to appease God. And he's saying to you, he says to you, stop, stop that. Rest in total freedom of trust. And from that rest, get to work. From rest, get to work. That's the difference between appeasing and pleasing. You work for the pleasure of pleasing him. I mentioned Eric Liddell, at the start of the sermon, when I run, I feel God's pleasure. Well, if you've seen chariots of fire, you know that Eric Liddell had a rival in those days. Another great sprinter, his name was Harold Abrahams. Harold Abrahams ran for a very different reason. He said this: "I'm 24, and I've never known contentment." I'm forever in pursuit and I don't even know what I'm chasing. I look down that corridor and I know I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. That's how many people live their lives. The work that Christ calls you to is not that of tireless and endless justification of your existence. Christ says to you, he says to me today, Come to me all who are weary who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. And once you are resting, once you are resting in Christ, it's from that rest that your life is marked by hard work. I think Louis Giglio once called it furious rest, fruitful rest, a heart that is set apart for Christ and his kingdom, going all out for the glory of God, which wraps up our, our sentence. Number four, we are those taught by God to love quietly and busily for the glory of Christ in the world. See, Paul gives a, a reason, the reason for quiet, busy love in the world. In verse 12, he says, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. There is a tension in Scripture. that on the one hand, we have statements like this, that suggests that we are to live in such a way that we are well thought of by unbelievers. Well thought of by people in the workplace, by outsiders. In fact, 1 Timothy 3.7 says that's one of the qualifications of an elder. And yet on the other hand, Jesus said things to us in, in the book of Luke like, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. There's this tension in Scripture. How is that tension resolved? I believe it boils down to this one question. What is the reason for the world's reviling? Why are they reviling you? Christian, you have lost the plot. If in your workplace they laugh off your claim that Christ is Lord because they see you reveal in the marketplace that their God is your God. That success and approval and money and power is your God. When you're no different and your heart is not secure in Christ. When you love what they love. When you put first what they put first. And your walk says, you know, really, Christ is not supreme in my life. In worth and glory to me. I'm pursuing exactly the same things you all are. If the world reviles you, it must be because of your allegiance to a a Lord to whom they will not and cannot bow. Because your heart belongs to Christ alone. Because, as we sang, your value is fixed and your ransom is paid at the cross. The world's reviling ought to be because of your soul rest in the midst of hard work. Because of your quietness of spirit in the midst of the world's clamoring for attention. The world's reviling ought to come only because your life shouts about the emptiness of the world system and about the supreme value of Christ in your life because your soul sings, I rejoice in my Redeemer, greatest treasure, wellspring of my soul. I will trust in Him no other. My soul is satisfied in Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, we know that our our hearts, as John Calvin said, are idle factories, that always we are creating these little gods, these little things that we pursue instead of finding our, our worth, our value, our significance in you. We know that we are loved, and yet so often we forget that your love is stable and sure. That your love for us is not dependent upon our, our effort, our toil, and what we produce. And so we, we live sometimes insecure. So I pray, Father, that you would remind us again of the love that you have poured out into our hearts. Remind us again of the, our position in Christ, of the gift that you've given us in the Holy Spirit, who will never leave us or forsake us. And help us as love-taught ones, God-taught ones, to be able to rest secure and love those around us. I pray, Father, for everybody in this room. I do pray for those who go to a a job that they really, really struggle to find meaning in, and purpose and value. I pray for those who, who are in difficult situations, maybe difficult because of their faith or difficult because of the unreasonableness of bosses. Lord, I pray that you would give them endurance, that you would give them strength and that you would help them to see their work not just as a means to the end of money, but they would see it, Lord, as a way to worship you. Oh God, make us long-suffering in the workplace, that when people see our patience because of your grace on display in our lives, they would give glory to you. And then we pray, Lord, that through our lives, Christ's glory and grace would be put on display. You are good and you are patient with us. I pray that you would give us patience and give us endurance and give us meaning in walking in the mundane in everything that we do out of glory and love for you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.